minute, any second, I heard a guitar riff. Join Andrew Wall, Hector Garcia, and Michael Lee. One mission, one rule. Make accounting fun. Welcome to Friday Night Live with Accountants. Are you ready? Happy uh, Friday, everybody. We're back again with uh, Brad, my new co-host. And we've got a special guest with us this week. He actually runs four, four separate companies. Um, you know, I've got to know him very well at uh, QB Connect. I was uh, fortunate to share a few late nights with him and even more fortunate to share a car ride back with him to uh, from San Jose to SFO, uh, where I got to chew his brain and learn a little bit more about his vision for the future and, and Matt Path, thank you uh thank you for joining us today how you doing yeah very good thanks for having me um it's crazy great to times. see you yeah great to see you guys I missed you last year so um yeah good memories yeah and I think that's that's what this show is about for us is is being able to reconnect with all those great relationships that we made at the conferences right which the you meet these amazing people like yourself and so many others down there who really inspire you and then you you don't get to see them for a whole year or sometimes with the internationals, sometimes never again, because they really shut that down after the first couple of years, right? Yeah, look, I've been heading to conference season in the US. Uh, I think it's about eight years ago, I started going over. Clayton Oates dragged me over. I was actually general manager of a mid-market ERP system. And Clayton was one of our partners and he'd been going over to see Doug Sleater at Vegas and um, Sleetercon, as it used to be called. And um, he's like, oh, Matt, you got to get over here. This is, you know, good to see what's happening elsewhere in the world. For eight years, I've, I've basically been heading over to, to, to Vegas. Or, and then when QB Connect started, what, six years ago, um, I think there was a crossover where those two happened about a week and a half apart. I ended up going to both. And, and then effectively, Sleetercon was bought out and, dare I say, died. Um, and yeah, Slita, what was going with Quick QB Connect until last year was was quite remarkable. Actually, it was the only really world event for the the sort of hashtag cloud accounting software space. You know, connecting with people like yourselves and the guys from England and people from India and people from Brazil, all sorts of people from all around the world who are living and breathing the same Brand. thing we are. Yeah, yeah, I feel really fortunate to have been a part of that era. Um, I don't think I'd be here today if it weren't for some of the amazing connections we've made and the insights and, you know, uh, like I said, the, the great conversations that I've had with you, usually after one too many drinks, um, <laughs> but it's, it's amazing. You seem to just, you get in the zone and, and it's, you know, you've had a full day of, of sort of powering your brain with, at the time, stuff that was really revolutionary, right? Uh, at least for most accountants in North America. It was sort of old hat to you Aussies who had been in the game a little bit longer than the North Americans. But for us, it was like, it was new emerging technology. It was fresh and it was interesting. And then you were coming back afterwards and mingling in the lobby bar with all of the top people from around the world and getting these different world perspectives and talking about what maybe the outside world doesn't find interesting, but to a nerdy accountant, it's just like, it just is, is uh, food for my brain. And I just loved it and I couldn't get enough of it. I guess the, the real question now is if Intuit is moving more 
away from this model. And, you know, we've all had conversations about this in the past and, and it sort of seems like the writing is in the wall. You know, obviously QB Connect in Australia was canceled before COVID. Um, you know, the, the last year's conference was, there was no internationals there. It's, it's sort of fading away. You know, is, is this just, we were lucky to be a, port, a part of that, that 15 minutes of fame and it's gone? Or do you think something will come in? So Five years. But... Yeah, what's your futurist hat saying now, Matt? <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, to be honest, I, I, I think it's just reflective of the changing of the guard at Intuit. Um, for, for an Aussie, obviously, we've, we've had a, a fair runway of this whole cloud accounting space and it's probably you know, been driven a bit by zero, but then... The, the, the counteraction to zero by MYB down here and then the arrival of QuickBooks into the market. We've, we're over 50% penetration now of small businesses running cloud accounting software, which sort of, you know, outside places like um, the Netherlands and that, it, it's leading the world in, in adoption. And we weren't really exposed to, to other markets, but then other markets started to go, hey, there's, there's a bit going on down under maybe we should get these guys here and, and start talking about it. And it's really only the, the enormous balance sheet and revenue of Intuit that was able to afford it. Now, I, I have been lucky enough to go to Sage um, conference um, last year. They, um, they Sage had acquired Intact and they, they invited a couple of us over, um, but it's, it's a different feel. It's a different level of the market. Obviously the, the small business market is much more accountant focused whereas the ERP market is much more um, value-added resellers or VARs as they call them. Um, and it just, it's a different interaction. And to be honest, I tread both worlds. I come from that value-added reseller sort of mid-market space and, and engulf myself as I saw where the future of sort of accounting software was heading in the small business space. And there's still a massive divide between the two. So long-winded way of, you know, answering your question, Andrew, like I, I see the Sasan Gadzdazi era of Intuit has changed things. You know, we, we had Brad, who I always thought was destined for politics. You know, he, he, he's quite the, the politician. Everybody loves him. He presents, he's one of the best orators I've ever seen. Um, and he loved the, 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 the big stage, you know, the first QB Connect, uh, oh no, the second QB Connect had Oprah. Yes. You know, I just remember getting there and watching Oprah and just going, you know, here I am thinking, oh, Oprah's just this, you know, American TV host, you know, I didn't think much of her. I, I watched her for two hours at QB Connect and walked away completely inspired and in awe of the woman. Like, she was just amazing. Mm -hmm. And I remember coming back to Australia, like... Not my Oprah story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah Oprah just, story? No, I need to hear it. No, I was, Matt, that was, very, that was my very first QB Connect. QB Connect came out of nowhere. I met her that same year. We've, we've been to, that was our, our first ones. And it was, I got invited into it to attend an event out of the blue. I had no idea what the heck was going on. I went down there and you know how it is. Um, QuickBooks Connect was just absolutely no way. But of course, Oprah was speaking. And I thought, that's pretty cool, you know? And then all the other speakers, they got great main stages. And I was like, I really enjoy so many of the speakers. So I was really enjoying it. And I thought, oh, great, Oprah. And so I love to go in. I went running in with all the middle-aged ladies. Maybe middle-aged is a, is a generous term in some cases. <laughs> I pulled over all these people. And I tried to sit down as this old lady kind of pushed out of the way. And, and um, 
beat him with her cane. I had to. I, yeah, I almost got beat with a cane and was forced over to another seat. But it was great. Like I, my memories of 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 2015, my first books connect. I mean, you always remember first, right? But you said you were at the at the first one before that, correct? Yeah, because as I said, I, I, I'd been heading over for Sleetacon and they basically were about two weeks apart. And it, oh. I remember it was a big deal. So they say Inchil, stay around. Yeah, Inchil was always the biggest sponsor of Sleetacon and then they just stopped sponsoring and they did their own. And um, it, it, it was an interesting time because Doug had originally ran Sleetacon as a QuickBooks only event. And then between sort of that 2013 to 2016 period, he very much opened it up to Zero and, and Sage and all these other vendors and started talking about his, you know, his buzzwords, holistic chunkification and all these apps. And it just became a very different event. And, and for me, it was a fantastic event to validate that what we were doing in Australia was actually ahead of what was happening up there, but also um, you know, to meet the people and, and spend the time to talk about our industry. And as I said, it, it became a habit. And Andrew, we were talking before the show that coincidentally around that time, I've had three kids and each of my three kids has coincided ultimately with a trip to the US for, for a QuickBooks Connect or a Sleetacon or a um, Sage Intact event, you know. So um, my wife's a very patient woman and... Um, but I, I need to go back to that 2015. So I'm, I've been in the accounting software industry for 20 years. Um, and I started, I know very well, I started at an accounting software company the week the Paralympics finished in Sydney and the Sydney Olympics was 2000. And so this is my 20th year in the industry. I'm not an accountant. I'm, I'm a, did a business degree majoring in marketing and management. And I ended up in an accounting software company as a assistant to the export manager. Anyway, I sort of worked through pretty much every sort of role from, from uh, you know, support to um, sales and marketing and general manager boardrooms, these sort of things within the accounting tech space. I ran my own value-added reseller business. I've done all these things. And I, I'm very much a student of the, um, the history of accounting software. The, the company I used to be a shareholder in and run was started coinciding with the release of the, the, the PC in August 12, 1981, uh, IBM released the PC and, and our company was one of the first companies in the world to do accounting software. Not that I was there at the time, but many years later. But um, some, some of your listeners may remember, but in, in, in 1983, the product was bought from Australia with $8 million in venture capital money. And it was um, one of the main products in the US before QuickBooks existed. It was a product called Attaché. And anyway, long story behind that, but I, I was always a student. I love the history of the accounting software industry and I went and saw Oprah, but that actually wasn't my highlight of that event. On one of the 11 stages that were running on the agenda was Scott Cook having a fireside chat with Eric Rise. Now I'm going to tell you, Scott Cook is like there. This dude. You just go, like this, this guy started this thing and yeah. very few... Very few software companies in the world have ever been able to scale into small business space. And effectively, QuickBooks was the first and only one for a very, very long time. And so we, we lived in awe of Scott Cook and, and what he was able to achieve. Yes. But then Eric Rise is the, you know, the startup dude. Like Eric Rise is the lean startup and, and, and the principles behind the lean startup. I lived and breathed his book. I took it back to my company. I had 100 staff 
read this book because I'm like, this is this is what we need to start living and breathing. And we used to call ourselves, you know, the book talked about Intuit being the 7,000 employee startup. And we, we called ourselves the 100 employee, 30 year old startup, you know. And anyway, the, he, these two are sitting on a side stage and it, there's about 200 people in the audience. And at one stage, Scott says, does anyone know who Eric is? And me and one other guy put our hands up and no one actually knew who Eric Rise was. And I'm sitting there going, this is- I remember that. I was there. I remember that because I did not. I was like, who is this guy? That was that that whole fireside they did was one of my biggest memories. I got some really cool photos. I wish I knew you were, you were going to bring that up. I would have done screen share because I front row like I have to get. Well, I was the pain in the ass Aussie up the back asking all the questions. <laughs> I, I remember it was a lively conversation. This was all new to me. I just figured out who Scott Cook was that day. I think he was main stage that day, was he not? Didn't he come up? He had been earlier in the day. He, he had been and earlier then, in the day, main stage. And then he did this fireside chat. So, yeah. And this Eric just kind of sat back and he was the mad scientist and he was asking the, the really technical questions and Scott's just batting them out of the park. And, and they had such a great back and forth conversation. I, I didn't have a clue what they were talking about half the time, but I felt like I did. That makes yeah. sense. That's one of the other things about QB Connect, though, is the FOMO. So that's one of those things because there's 11 other stages. I wasn't at that stage. And now I'm sitting there going, darn it. I can't believe I missed that. Right? Um, and that's. Yeah, it was really good. So yeah. I guess the question though is, um, I mean, and we were having a discussion earlier about the different ways that Brad and Sasan managed the business. And, and, you know, when you look at next quarter, obviously the big budgets and the amount of money that they spend on these things, it's easy to see why that's the first thing that you cut on the budget. Right. But is there long-term value that they're missing out on? You know, is, uh, is it the right decision? I, I, I can't really answer that question because I, I, I don't want to know how much money they spent on those events. They must have been millions of dollars events and, and they didn't get a return through ticket that. sales or, or anything like that. The, the return is about brand. And, you know, from my perspective, you know, people like Shelto McPherson, myself, you know, we, we were given what I felt like royal service to be flown over their business class. And, and I, I've got a great story. The first year, they, the, the first two years, I went on my own, on my own dime. The, the third year, I'd written a couple of blogs and a few people had followed my blogs and I got invited sort of as a complimentary visit. And um, I'd never really experienced anything like that. I'm, I'm not a journalist. I'm, I'm just a, a dude who loves the industry and writes about it. And uh, basically... There was a few after parties because the Fairmont Hotel, as we were talking about before, the, the, the bar shuts, supposed to shut at 12, it generally shut by about one most nights. And then we end up sort of dispersing and a few, a couple of the nights of, of that 2015 ended up back in my apartment. <laughs> uh, oh, actually, it must have been 2016, back in my apartment. And a few of the, the, the Intuit staff would come. And I remember Jackie, who was sort of running Australia at the time, was one of those people. And they ordered all these bottles of champagne on my room and they ordered all this food on my room. And I'm, I'm sitting there going, how am I going to pay for this? <laughs> this is going to cost me thousands. <laughs> I was sort of like, I was breathing a little bit. And I'm like, you know what? I haven't paid for my airline ticket. I haven't paid for, for the room bill. And then at about 6.30 a.m. the night before we said, uh, the morning before we sort of leave, Yugal, who was running India at the time, was in my room. And everyone had sort of left my room and Yugal was the last man standing. And I'm like, Yugal, 
I reckon my my bar tab on my room is going to be about three thousand US dollars. And I, the Australian dollar would have been about sixty US cents at the time. Like it's going to cost me five grand, you know. Like, and Yuval's like, "Don't worry about it. I'll sort it out." And you know, I get downstairs and it's all covered. And I, I was like blown away. And I was just one person, you know. And, and anyway, the, the point is like the extravagant extravagance of it all. Probably they did get their money because, to be honest, I've spoken quite positively of Intuit, and and their Intuit came from a quite in Australia anyway, a, a, quite a period behind that. They used to have a distributor in Australia called Reckon. Yep. And Reckon distributed QuickBooks Desktop. And so there was a little bit of a, uh, about I think eight years ago, there was a discussion. Does Intuit buy Reckon or does basically Intuit come to Australia themselves and see you later Reckon? And there was some big personalities on both sides of the table at the time. And the decision that was made, no, uh, Reckon can have the QuickBooks desktop product and Intuit's going to come to Australia as, as a cloud product. And they basically were, were well behind. Like Xero was well established at the time. MYOB was a dominant player in the market. Reckon with QuickBooks de desktop was a dominant player in the market. And there was an early cloud product in Australia at the time called Sasu. And Sasu had done quite well. They were probably the most advanced cloud accounting software product. And so Intuit had to sort of get into Australia and establish the company from scratch. And I think what they were able to do by getting people like the likes of myself and, and Shalto over is that when we would write about what's going on, you had to include into it because you saw this big giant with this massive balance sheet and a, you know, a product that until Zero came along, QuickBooks Online was a fairly ordinary product. And all I'd ever hear about at QuickBooks Connect was when are we going to get desktop parity? Desktop parity was never really discussed in Australia. We didn't care about desktop parity because the step change with bank feeds and the step change with all the stuff that Zero was, was doing, it was it's leapfrog. just leapfrog. So it, yes, it doesn't have all those inventory features, but you go and get an add-on for that. And, and like, it, it was really sort of off-putting for me when I was in the States and people were always, like, even people like Doug Sleater, who I saw as an industry leader was saying things like, yeah, but they need desktop parity. And I'm like, no, they don't. <laughs> like that people will forgive features that aren't there if it's a better user experience, if it makes their life easier. If you're changing your mindset to bank feeds and auto coding, like it's just a different way of doing it and you would never go back. And so Intuit saw zero coming and there was actually a famous event at one of Doug Sleater's conferences. He had a guy from Sage, a guy from... Um, uh, Intuit and a guy from um, Zero on stage, and the guy from Zero, Rod Drury, gets up, and we're going to collaborate. We're going to bring the world into the cloud. And the guy from Intuit gets up and goes, "I think it was Dan Wernickoff. No, we're not going to do that. We're not going to collaborate. We're just going to own the space. We, you know, who, who are you from New Zealand? You're coming over here and telling us that you're going to please. We own this space. We've been doing cloud since 2001. You know, you <laughs> please go away." And it was quite an area, but it was, it was exactly what they did. They went, okay, they went out to the market. What do people like about Xero? They like bank feeds. Okay, we better get that sorted. They like the user interface. They like the API. They like the ecosystem. So over the, the, the period around 2014 to 2016, Intuit got their act together. They took what was a fairly ordinary replication of desktop in the cloud, and they actually made a decent cloud solution. And then I think it was 2016, 2017, they brought in a new user interface and it was game on. Yeah. You know, and then you look at the numbers ever since and they've just been 
growing and growing and growing. And we, we know they own the North American sort of market, but they started, you know, even in the results published this week, they're growing 50% internationally at the moment. Yeah, despite, um, despite COVID. And despite, despite COVID. Yeah. and despite their Q3 phone call where they're saying their own payroll numbers are slumping, right? Oh, that, that, that to me was one of the biggest things in, in that um, conference call was the start of the quarter, their payroll numbers were up 20% on last year. By the end of the quarter, their payroll numbers were down 10% on last year. So, you, you know, you go 1.2x minus y equals 0.9x. They're down big numbers, right? 30% of whatever sort of numbers. That's a huge fall. And, like, it's only that their quarter three results really, you know, haven't have only been the start really of the COVID effect, right? Yeah. So it's the same as Zero announced their numbers. Their numbers were announced at 31st of um, yeah. March. Same with um, first half for Sage. Sage's number were at the 31st of March. Yeah. I don't think we've actually seen the impact on the industry yet in, in any of the, the results. But I'll tell you what, I think, I don't think the market is reading the numbers close enough. I, I, I look at, Intuit's been growing for 30% plus year on year on year on year with their, their QuickBooks Online. And they're talking about in their statements, they're saying, we, we're not going to have this. In fact, we're seeing a higher churn rate and a lower acquisition rate. Yeah. It's gone. And yet their share price is still, you know, 5% from their right. peak at but February then, where everyone says they were overpriced, you know, like it's. But then you also have Sassan and, and Brad selling off shares. Right? Oh, there you go. Yeah. Well, that says a lot, doesn't it? Yeah, that, that tells you a little something. Yeah, I, I, look, I, I'm a bit of a pessimist. I think we've been on a bull run since the 23rd of March on global sort of stock markets. And I just, I, uh, the economic effects, you know, we go back to GFC, the economic effect of GFC took 18 months to hit. The bottom of the market was after 18 months. Mm -hmm. And yet we've gone from a very quick bear market into a full bull market in the space of, you know, a couple of months. Well, the, the US is up over 30% since the 20, you know, the 21st of March. Australia is up over 20% since the 21st of March. And now we're, we're collateral damage in Australia of the Chinese um, US trade war. They're now putting tariffs on Australian products because we're seen as a proxy of the US. You know, so the Australian economy is so reliant on that trade relationship with the US, uh, with um, China, our economy is going to be in, in serious strife. It's not just COVID. It's all these other things that are going on in the world at the moment. And I think it's going to have massive impact on, on the cloud accounting space. Um, in some respects, there's logic to say that adoption will increase because people don't want to have desktops and this. But I think there's and enough they, host. They can't, right? Yeah, but there's enough hosting services and people using, you know, Microsoft Remote Desktop, these sort of things these days to just continue. But yeah. Um, that said, I just don't think there's going to be as many new businesses start up. You know, this is just, uh, it's, it's a risky proposition to go and um, start a business when you're not sure of the future. I think there needs and to how be much some v sort of... How much VC money is going to be out there to do it too, right? I've been pondering that, Andrew, actually, because at the end of the day, where, where are the VCs going to put their money? They've still got the cash. It's not like that, that money's completely evaporated. And you're not going to put it in the bank because the banks are paying you 0% interest. You're probably not going to put it into bonds because the bond rate is, you know, 
has been negative over right. 10 years, um, you're probably not going to put it in the share market because I think the share market's going to be volatile. Like, where are you going to put the money? I'm, you know, I do a lot of work for, for, for VCs and, and, you know, that due diligence type stuff. I actually think there'll be a bit of an uplift in acquisitions and um, some investments because a few of these startups are going to be in trouble. They've got a great idea. They just haven't got to the point of commercial success yet. And they're the good ones to pick up. If you yeah. can pick them up and roll them into your company, and that I, I don't know if you saw that in the in the the Intuit Q Q three results, they've drawn down another billion dollars into their um, balance sheet from debt. So they've now got four billion dollars sitting in their cash, basically ready. What's it there for? They don't need it to pay dividends. They don't need it to buy back stock. It's sitting there because I I think they suspect there's going to be some good acquisitions come yeah. available. I think they're probably oh. great. What do you, and speaking of acquisitions, what did you think of Credit Karma? Oh, look, I'm a little bit removed from that side of Intuit, to be honest. In Australia, the government effectively supplies TurboTax. It's a government thing. It's, you know, we have a thing called MyGov. And if you want to do electronic tax, you do it yourself through MyGov. Right. Um, so ter- there is no equivalent of TurboTax in the US. So that sort of consumer side of Intuit doesn't exist here. It's only purely QuickBooks Online. Yeah. So I, I sort of don't pay as much attention to it, but I certainly, I think it's a logical. Seven, $7 billion for a, 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 basically a list of companies. Like that no, you no, 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 Andrew, 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 this is what you're missing. $7 billion for the likely number one competitor to TurboTax. $7 billion to take out the risk of TurboTax being un- undermined by a competitor. You look at what look at what Facebook has done over the last 10 years. They paid a billion dollars for Instagram. That would have to be the greatest investment in the history of the business world, I reckon. A billion dollars at the time for a company that was only like a couple of years old with no revenue. Everyone's going, a billion dollars, what are you doing? In hindsight, they took out the one company that was probably the biggest competitor to Facebook. And then what'd they do? $23 billion for WhatsApp. So now Facebook own WhatsApp and, you know, the, the, there's no genuine competition. TikTok's coming along now and maybe the Chinese government can help fund that to a level that it's competitive. But <laughs> I, I, what I'm seeing is I think there's going to be, and, and it worries me about, I'm, I'm a tech guy. So I'm not an accountant, I'm a tech guy. I worry about this move towards monopoly and oligopolies in the tech world because I think there is just like, how could you build a competitive search engine? Like I've tried, there's DuckDuckGo and there's these other search engines that have popped up, but (laughs) none of them come close to Google because they they have the data. Yeah. They know what I'm searching for and they they, they look at what, what I've searched in the past and they look at what everyone else is searching the data becomes such a barrier to entry to even if you have a magnificent idea, they can either copy it or, or their level of data beats you, right? So I have this sort of concern that these, and look at Amazon. Amazon, you know, Bezos is now going to be the world's first trillionaire. It's, it's because they can just keep going and going and going. I think there's going to be at some point a need for governments to step in and break up these companies. I just don't know who's going to do it. 
it kind of needs to be the US government because it's the big guys are, are typically US or Chinese, right? Like it's, mm-hmm. anyway, I'm, I'm getting off on a, on, on a different tangent, but I guess back to the topics relevant to the audience is, is that Intuit have this $4 billion in their balance sheet. Zero took out a $300 million effectively credit on the Singapore Stock Exchange about two years ago, and they haven't spent a cent. They took it out after they'd already bought HubSpot, uh, Hub, HubDoc. Um, and yeah, I, I just don't know where it's going to come. There you go. <laughs> you found it. I found it. I've been searching ever since. How's that for a front seat? Look at Scott looking right at me going, who's that dweeb with the, the camera? But that's yeah. where I kind of stood my whole conference thing was sitting up front, getting the best shot in the middle of it. Now, Matt, did you catch any of Andrew and I a couple of years ago when we were interviewing Cezanne and Brad and doing all that? You were there for that. Oh, right? I was there, yeah. And, and then I caught it. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. You had your PC over with the media and all that. You already had a reserve seat. Andrew and I used to fight front row. We battle. We had a battle plan, and last year they actually made it easy for us. We just they had a round stage in Toronto and San Jose, and it yeah. seemed smaller when you first came, but it was actually exceptional. Oh, there you go. I had to share that one. Scott's and yeah, yeah. I didn't. Yeah, so um, I had to find that photo and searching for it ever since. No, it's it's Sorry. it's a I memory digress. I'll have for many many years to come. It, it was just. I remember getting back to Australia and talking to people within the tech industry. And I said, I just went to this conference in the US and like one of 11 stages that we're running is Eric Rice talking to Scott Cook. And even people outside the accounting industry know who Scott Cook is because as I said, there's been very few companies on the planet who've been able to scale into the small business space. And there's a fascinating blog I once read on why that is because the more small businesses you have, the higher acquisition rate has to be to cover the churn because small businesses are prone to failure, right? So if, if you're growing and you grow and you get to a million customers and you know that the churn rate annually of, of um, small business, I think it's around 12, 13%, right? So the, the number zero is probably the best at publishing their churn rate numbers and they 11, 12% is where they typically churn every year. So that that's probably at the lower end of churn, to be honest. So if you've got a million customers, that's 110,000 customers you have to get before you have a net positive gain. You get to 2 million, that's 220,000 customers you have to add to get to. And so Intuit was one of the first ones to break through that. And so Scott Cook, outside the accounting technology industry, was just always being revered for his ability to, 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 to scale. But the reality is Scott didn't actually build QuickBooks. Oh, that, that was an acquisition. He, he built Quicken. It's an acquisition? Yeah. Quicken. And, and use it. Use that product. Oh, I knew who he was. So I didn't know his story before I got there. And for anyone who doesn't know, Scott Cook started Quicken at his famous, I'll let you guys fill in the blank. Did he start Quicken? Yeah, Kitchen, kitchen table, table, 1983. Play in Mountain View. Yeah. And that table is still there. Everyone who's been to, to Mountain View knows the table. And it's an inspiring story because I used the product when it was so new, you know, and I've used it for years. I still use it, you know, it's not cloud-based. It's, they don't own, it doesn't own it anymore. They just spun it off years ago, but it's, it's the first 
um, financial product ever used. So yeah. there he was. I totally, I totally understood the 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 uh, value of the product because I used it for so long. And then the story, and then when he saw the Eric, I mean, it was these two. There's so much gray matter up there. The kind of IQ of those two. It was amazing, wasn't it? Well, what I find so interesting is you look at Intuit and you look at the, the three three key things that, that you're talking about, Matt, which is churn, uh, monthly recurring revenue, and cost of acquisition, right? Those are almost the universals across all businesses right now for good acquisitions, right? And and I think what, what's really interesting now is that, you know, and I want to take your brain and, and, and get you to take your the mind that you use to evaluate software technology companies and apply it against accounting companies who have gone from this shift of hourly billing to monthly recurring revenue. Um, and, and, and some smart, there's a few smart accountants out there that have figured out, you know, with digital marketing, how, how to specifically exactly measure your cost of acquisition and your lifetime value. And, and is it just a formula now? And, and what is that formula and how does that valuation on accounting practices change when you move from the old formula of hourly to monthly recurring revenues? Uh, it's funny. I, I finished school. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew it had to be something to do with business. I went and did a business degree. I finished my degree, didn't know what I wanted to do. And then I kind of fell into an accounting software company and then fell in love with the purity of what accounting software did as far as it, it is the thing that structures a lot of business process. For a lot of small businesses, they have no real structure except for the fact they have to do their accounting. They enter their bills, they, they send their invoices. That's the, 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 the key business process that is structured in their organisation. And I, I fell in love with that. And then I fell in love with the business model of recurring revenue. Like the, the company I was working for was one of the first in the world to go to a subscription model. And we did it on the desktop. We didn't need the cloud to do it. It's just that a lot of the um, software players saw the cloud as the opportunity to change the business model around um, software. So if you think about it, the software industry itself has gone through that transformation of business model only in the last probably two decades. You used to buy software and pay for upgrades and then you'd buy software and get maintenance plans, which was some form of recurring revenue for software companies. And then someone woke up one day and go, well, why do we sell it? Why don't we just do the maintenance plan only? And we build this recurring revenue. So I got immersed in this recurring revenue idea early on. And I always said it, and I say it as a joke, but I sincerely mean it. If I had the talents, there's no better business model than writing a great song. Like you make recurring revenue forever on effort that might take some people only five minutes. You know, I look, I look at... You know, Chris Martin leads her in Coldplay. I've seen him, you know, write songs like that. He just knows how to write a song. And if I could do that, that would be the business I'd be in because the recurring revenue on, you know, performing arts uh, on, on songwriter rights is the perfect business model. Yeah. Software is the second next perfect business model because you can write software and your cost of replication approaches zero, particularly in the cloud. It doesn't cost you anything to have another customer particularly if you get into a model where you can get them to self-service and, and do those sorts of things. Now, a lot of the world has seen that and go, well, how do we take that business model into professional services? And it's not easy. And, and that's why we're still, you know, th th there's a, a guy from Australia called Paul Dunn. Paul Dunn was talking about 
value pricing in the accounting industry in the 90s. He put out video series and he then got in with a couple of guys in America um, and they produced a book, um, uh, Ron Baker. And Ron Baker and Paul did this book about, you know, where the pricing per hour is just ridiculous. You know, like, well, why do we price per hour? The, the, the more knowledge you have, the better you are, the less time it takes. That was so firm, of the, firm of the Future was that book, right? That's exactly that book. Yeah. So that would that book came out 20 years ago. And so we're still talking about it. Ron Baker's still doing podcasts and talking at conferences and, and his Black Swan program. And, and um, you know, Paul Dunn's moved on to something else. He got B1, G1, which is an incredible initiative. And he's actually um, got a, a series going on right now. I give him a bit of a plug. Uh, and I'll, I'll try and find a way to share the link. And if anyone who's listening, share the link. Paul Dunn's got a whole series of, free webinars and content coming up that he's putting on internationally. So little plug for you, Paul. <laughs> I, he's the doyen. When it comes to value pricing, yeah, him and Ron have been talking about it for years. And, and I saw a video actually of Paul Dunn, just to digress for a moment. When I first started in the accounting software company, he had a video um, with a guy called Wally. It was a, it, it, he did a whole video series that you could buy the, the, the DVDs and this one particular video was Wally was a guy who was into birds and he started a pet shop because he loved birds but then he got so into business he systemized everything and he became like a, one of Australia's largest pet stores and Paul's interviewing him two weeks before he dies of pancreatic cancer and he knows he's going to die right and it's one of the most powerful sort of inspiring business videos I've ever seen because he got to the point, he bought the Ferrari. He basically had this awesome business that ran without him. He, he had systemized it to that point and then the poor bugger dies, right? Like, it, it, and, and Paul's having a conversation with him about any regrets. And it's like, no, I've enjoyed the journey. Like I've, it, it's been, and, and I've taken that away. Anyway, the, the point on it was, we, we had the conversation about recurring revenue. Recurring revenue side of value pricing, I think accountants have often done recurring revenue. You know, in Australia, what typically happens is an accountant will charge you per company or per personal tax return. They just do it annually, right? They, instead of monthly. <laughs> they just do it annually. And, and they, the way they work out the price is what they charge you last year plus 5%. And, and like, it seriously is the business model they've had forever. And they make a decision about WIP do we write it off? Do we count it? Like they don't, they haven't, but this idea of moving to value pricing and, and recurring revenue for some reason seemed like a foreign sort of um, concept. But yeah. the, the point I, I, I also want to make is with software, the cost of replication approach is zero. You can't do that with professional services. Yeah. The, and I, I heard you guys talk about this last week with Richard Roper, right? The, the more you drive the price down, right? The worse the service is, right? The, 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 sorry, the more you drive the cost line down, the worse the service is and you end up, you know, there's actually a book called um, The Walmart Effect. If I, it's a book I read about 10 years ago and it talks about what Walmart has done to the world of retailing in the world of manufacturing and, and effectively their business model is, hey, I, I sold a thousand units this year Next year, I'm going to sell 10,000 units. So you got to do it for me cheaper. Mm. There is a point of diminishing return. 
if I sell 100,000 units, it doesn't mean I can do it any cheaper. But Walmart's model is you have to do it cheaper because yeah. last year I only bought 10,000 units. This year I'm buying 100,000 units. You have to do it cheaper. And so what a lot of American manufacturing did is they moved it to China because ultimately the cost of labor and the cost of electricity and these things are the only things that you can vary to, to reduce your cost. So the same thing happens in the accounting industry. So you basically, at some point, you in Australia, it's a big thing to outsource to the Philippines or to India. And so a lot of these people are outsourcing the, the tax work to Philippines and India, which is fine. But I, I worry about then that sort of evolution that an accountant goes through in, in doing that sort of work to then engage with their clients and have empathy for where, you know, the, the, the fundamentals of accounting to then continue to engage. And look, I'm not the expert to talk about it, but the recurring revenue model for professional services is always going to have a cost line in it yeah. that a software company doesn't have to the same level, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, software so when you make an investment up front and then they depreciate it over the years and hopefully they make money because they're a success. Whereas a service-based business, you don't have that big upfront cost. You've got this cost spread across the whole thing. And that is usually actually rising because of inflation. 100%. And uh, yeah, we're also changing the service that we're providing. Everyone's talking about advisory and, you know, compliance and, yeah, there's it, been a debate that's, I think, now run and won that compliance isn't dead. Compliance is always going to be around. And, you know, in, in Australia, we've had this thing called JobKeeper and every accountant for the last month has been busier than they've ever been because they're helping their clients fill out JobKeeper. And you've know, got PPP loans in, in, in America. I'm sure you've got similar things in Canada. Um, there's never going to be an absence of this need for compliance, but there is always going to also be this opportunity for value-added services and business consulting. And, and it doesn't necessarily have to be the accountants to provide that. There's been business coaches and, you know, it's funny, as a value-added reseller of a mid-market accounting product, I think I did a lot more business coaching, what's called advisory services, than any of my clients' accountants ever did. Right. That makes sense. So they may have been able to consult around tactics, but they never actually consulted around how we, how we sell more, how do we reduce our costs. These sort of things were things I was consulting on because I was able to aggregate my knowledge across my clients and see where technology could help identify sales opportunities and reduce costs and these sorts of things. And so I, the long-winded answer, Andrew, is there's absolutely a business model there. And I think um, Guy Pearson, the, the founder of uh, Practice Ignition, is one of the most advanced people. You know, He ran his accounting firm this way yeah. 10, 12 years ago. Yeah. Um, and he ended up also probably the reason he now owns a software company is he probably started to go, yeah, but software companies, marginal cost of sales can <laughs> go like this. Whereas scaling an accounting company, I've got to keep finding skilled resources and the good ones want more money or they want a shareholding in my business. Yeah. It, 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 I, I, I've got a very, um, very strong feeling about professional services. There is a certain number of, professional services, but not just accountants, but, you know, any sort of professional services, getting to seven staff is relatively easy. Making the leap to 15 is a challenge that there is a significant drop-off in the number of businesses who grow from seven to 15 in professional services space. It, because adding an extra staff member does not necessarily cost justify themselves for a period of time. There's, there's, there's a diminishing return for a period until you scale to the next step in your business. Yeah. And what you have is the director 
who's been the personality of that business, gets more and more um, involved in running the business than being the face of the business. And so the business actually goes a little bit backwards in that next phase of growth. So you go 7, 15, 30, and then 100, and then sort of beyond that. And if you have a look at the drop-off points in professional services, including accounting firms at each of those points, you'll see that there's a, you know, there really is a challenge for that, that scaling and growing. It's certainly in Australia, like I know in North America, there's a lot of really big accounting firms. We don't really have that in Australia. We, we, we have, you know, your tier one firms, your big four and, the, you know, tier two firms. And then there's a big drop off and, and the average suburban accounting firm has a few, you know, a couple of partners, a few staff, and then there's a step up to 15 to 20 staff. And then there's not many beyond that is, is yeah. the reality. I, I, I say in, in, in Canada anyways, it's similar. There's just one other level, which is making that gap from owner, manager, operator, um, chief bottle washer to two or three employees. There, there's that also gap that so many people that we see, particularly in the bookkeeping community, almost more so than the accounting community, really struggle with making that leap from I'm doing an everything to I'm now hiring my first or second or third employee. Uh, I think bookkeeping is much more personal because it, and it's it's it is a relationship. I've, I've I've seen bookkeepers have relationships with their clients where it's you know, they get invited to weddings of the kids and the owners and these sorts of things because they're there every week or every fortnight or every month. And it's not actually the quality of the bookkeeping service that gets judged often. It's the relationship that the owner has with the bookkeeper and trust, right? It's, uh, and in fact, to the point of detriment, I've, I've seen some horrible bookkeeping where like you just go, this person is absolutely, excuse the French, taking the piss. You know, and how much are they charging you to do this? Like, you know, they're charging you per hour. They come here and the first thing they do for the first three hours of the visit is talk to all your staff and have a coffee and they're charging you for that. They're, what? You know, that's, like, that's a good bookkeeper, right? Like, that's- it's a good bookkeeper, but like, what I'm saying is a balance here, right? Like the book, certainly in Australia, accountants can often have a once a year relationship. They shouldn't, but often that is the relationship. Yeah, that's business. so true. With bookkeepers, their relationship is perpetual. It's ongoing. It's it's, and even if you start to externalize some of those services, they still have a very tight relationship that is far stronger, I believe, than the external account. And and so yeah, I totally get what you're saying, Andrew, because it's hard to hire staff to do that when that staff member goes, you know what, Aliens. I can run a very low low overhead business from home. You're going to pay me. 50 bucks an hour to do bookkeeping for clients. Well, I could go and earn $75 an hour and I have very little overheads. You know what I mean? I, I need a laptop, I need a mobile phone and a car. You know, so there's you also this- You already more. <laughs> well, the, the, exactly. Uh, the, but my, the point I'm getting to is I think bookkeeping services, it's hard to keep good staff because if they're really good, they'll probably want to go and start their own thing. Absolutely. And, and, and so it, it, it's often the realm of, yeah, small teams and very few scale. Mm. And the ones that do scale are generally scaling without the relationship, which is actually the fundamental point of bookkeeping is that trust and that relationship. So, uh, yeah, it's, I, look, I think 
bookkeeping as an industry has a great opportunity to move towards software consulting as their primary thing that they do yeah. as the, as AP automation and some of the things like bank, um, you know, bank feed automation, those sorts of things start to eliminate a lot of what they historically had done. Um, it's, it's, it's funny that you say that because I think there's all this talk about advisory and advisory really is, it, it's software consulting. And I think if you actually framed it as software consulting as opposed to advisory, it's actually more digestible to people. Yeah, I, I agree with you, but I also disagree with you. So it's not just software advisory. So I'll, I'll give you a couple of stories as an example that happened in my career. Um, I remember a client was, he was a wholesaler of cake tins and cake accessories, right? And I'll cut out part of the story to get to the point where he, he decided to open up a retail chain and he saw that he was going to compete with his own customers. So he was wholesaling to retailers and then one day he decided, you know what, I want to get into the retail game. And he decided to do it by creating another company, creating another brand and pretending that it wasn't him. He, wanted, he didn't want his customers to find out that it was him behind this business. And he called the business uh, Cake Boss. And there happened to be a, a program on Fox called Cake Boss at the time. Buddy Lavastro. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I said, have you uh, looked into can you trade under that name? Like, you know, there's a really sort of popular show on cable TV called Cake Boss. And he goes, oh, yeah, we, we, we got the, um, the business name. That's fine. I said, Scott, a business name does not give you trademark. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, you can't use a business name to get around the trademark. Have, have you looked into the trademark? Oh, no, my accountant's done that. Like, it's all sorted. I've got the business name registered. No, I said, not. I said, Scott, like that, that, that's just not right, mate. And, and anyway, two weeks later, we'd gone to all this effort. We set up all these new um, companies and basically branding and he got a cease and desist letter <laughs> and basically he's, he's like oh Matt you know what you're telling me can you come in and give me some more advice around this and so I started advising on things that had nothing to do with software just because like I was exposed to lots of different clients and I was seeing this stuff happening in other clients and you learn from that there's, there's a thing that and I know you guys have interviewed Clayton and Clayton always um, gives me credit for introducing him to the Jahari window but the Jahari window is something that really explains what you do in the consulting space. You, you, uh, it's hard to sort of describe without the picture, but the idea is that every engagement you do, you learn something new and you take that to the next engagement. And, and effectively, the really good consultants and the best advisory firms are people who've had experience and exposure to certain circumstances and they can adapt that and, and, and help their, their, their other clients with that. And, and that's where um, I think advisory really is. It's not something that's easy for someone young to pick up. When I started um, doing my ERP consulting business, I was 27 and I'd have trouble convincing people that I knew what I was talking about because I didn't have gray hair. Right. You still now, look, you're 27. Oh no! Look, I've got a lot of grey coming through the the ISO beard at the moment. So, oh I'm, my God. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm now 42, and and I just don't have those challenges I had as a 27 year old. Even though I knew what I was talking about back then, but there's a certain you know um, respect you get by being a, a, a bit grey haired. So, 
anyway, the way we would make up for that is, is another side story is we would dress really smart. I'd get my staff, we'd always wear really sharp suits and ties. And we'd be going out to industrial areas and visiting clients. And they just knew that, oh, here comes the guys with the sharp suits. They must be really well educated. So our sort of, our work around the lack of gray hair was to dress really smart, which which seems really against the grain today because every it's the every accounting firm now wears t-shirts that are branded and you know it, it drives me crazy that was a software industry thing 15 years ago and now accounting firms are doing it but i think there's going to be the opportunity to go the other way but anyway uh, uh, i don't even know how i really got onto that sort of side but but i i, I think it's very interesting <laughs> I, what i was doing was i was telling the story about advisory isn't just software advisory is being able to love the process of business and understand the commonalities, whether it's within a particular vertical or across industries and being able to bring that to the table with your clients and being able to, you know, there's a great book that I think everybody should read is Getting Naked by Patrick Lanconi. Mm. Um, I read it maybe 10 years ago and I went, yes, this is, this is should what we date has worked first? for me. What's that? Shouldn't we date first? <laughs> well, I thought the Andrew idea... was trying to get naked. I, I did not admit that. <laughs> the, the idea behind getting naked was, yeah, was this. this. He's in his striptease. It's It's a fable where basically a large business consulting firm takes over a small business consulting firm. And the large business consulting firm tries to bring its practices into the small business consulting firm. But what they find is a small business consulting firm, which has no sales function, which basically doesn't have the processes around um, the, the, the way they manage their sales pipeline and those things that the big consulting firm actually sold more at a higher margin. And, and what it came back to is they would start consulting from minute one they'd meet with the client. And, and, and ultimately, the decision about whether the, the small business would go with that consulting firm would be a, a moot point. The first sales meeting was actually, well, what are your challenges? Let's start solving them. Hey, this is what I think we could, you should do there. And, and actually show your value as a, as a consultant and get naked. And if someone asks or throws an acronym at you, don't be scared to just go, not know that. Ask the client, sorry, what, what's that acronym mean again? Yeah, I was reading your blogs and had to Google HCM. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, that's fine. Human capital management, you know, yeah. like it's, uh, it, yeah. Anyway, I, 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 there, there's a lot of acronyms in tech. And yeah. one of the things I've always loved is pretending I don't know what those acronyms mean in a meeting. <laughs> and I, I, I used to run a software company and we had a rule in the software company, which was if you can't explain it to your mum, then you're talking at your ass. Um, it, it, you don't know what you're talking about. You can't use acronyms and words that your mum won't understand. So please stop doing it to clients. Please stop doing it to one another. Like it, 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 it's degrading. And, and unfortunately, the number of tech consultants and stuff out there who they get their ego from you not knowing what an acronym means, right? Like it's right. Please. And I, I sat in on a meeting once where this guy was throwing this acronym and I knew exactly what it, it had nothing to do with the meeting we had. And so I, I, I took him to town. I went, okay, can, can you, sorry, I'm a bit naive. Can you explain that acronym? Okay. So, so is this what you mean? Yeah. That's got absolutely nothing to do with what we're talking about. And he just went, 
<laughs> but everyone in the room's like, oh, this guy's amazing. Oh, this is like... Please. Yeah. There's nothing worse than someone who's trying to talk over you instead of to you, right? And try to show their arrogance by all the acronyms and smart pieces of technology that they know and not getting real. And as I guess as the term is, getting naked. Yeah, well, Getting Real is another book by the uh, the guys who, who started boot camp. Um, it's, it's another great book, Getting Real. Uh, getting Real, Getting Naked. 50, 57 signals, I think they, they, they go by. But um, yes, it, 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 there's some, like, that's one thing I put, you know, I, I'm not the book junkie that Clayton is, but one thing I've learned is, is I get inspiration from, from, from reading um, and it, it helps validate things that, I may do, but not consciously do. And it sort of makes it um, become a, a better habit and, and more conscious of it. Um, so. I have a question for you. Do you, have a, do you have a process to your reading? One of the things I find, I, I actually, I don't actually physically read. I've listened to a lot of audiobooks. Yeah. But I sometimes, I, I struggle with that because I'm like, I'm consuming so much content and I don't actually have a process for like absorbing, implementing. You yeah. know what I mean? Oh, look, whatever process I had went out the window when I had three young kids, right? Like, uh, it's, <laughs> I, I, I have three kids who none of them have ever been sleepers, right? So I, like life, when you've got young kids, and, and unless people have gone through it, 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 it's just, you can have every plan under the sun and it just doesn't matter. Like, <laughs> it just, and, and so you, you've got to learn to adapt. And one thing I guess that I learned in the software industry is be agile and, and run projects in an agile way because trying to plan too much in advance is, uh, you know, can can bring you un, 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 unstuck. Whereas Just if like you can be agile, about, which is like being a parent. And, and also, you know, patience is something that, like I, I, I wasn't one for patience and, Parenting has taught me patience like nothing else. Yeah. Um, but getting back that <laughs> my methodology around reading, I, I kind of I go to conferences and I literally sit there on my phone as people mention books and I buy them on Amazon. So by the time I get back from the, the conference, the book's already been delivered. And my problem is I just have a, a backlog of books because over the last eight years since having kids, I don't get to read as many as as I wish I could. Um, but I. I I'm lucky that I I can absorb a book and and know where it fits. The best thing for me to do is then when I start to communicate that to other people and explain how they can leverage some of those ideas. Once I start teaching others, that's when it's sort of embedded and, and part of my psyche, if that makes sense. And I, there's actually been great great studies on that. I think there's a a prison in New York State where what they did is the reoffense rate at the prison used to be 75% would be effectively reoffenders. Um, and I'm just pulling these numbers out of my backside, but the number was, you know, huge reoffense rate. And what they did is they brought in a program where the prisoners would teach other prisoners how not to reoffend. And the reoffense rate went down to single digits. Wow. Because when you're teaching others, it becomes a part of your psyche and embedded in you what you're teaching. And so one of the best ways to learn is taking that out to others. So for me, that's writing a blog. For me, that's, that's when I'm doing my consulting, putting it into practice and teaching others how to do that and what they do day to day. 
I, I couldn't uh, agree with you more. I mean, you're, there, there is something about taking the time to show someone something. And I think a lot of us as business owners struggle with that, where we just want to do things ourselves uh, and take it over and do that task as, as opposed to taking the time to teach someone because it takes longer to teach someone than it takes you to do it yourself. We were talking about that the other week with another guest and you know, they want to bring in someone who's, who's trained already because they don't have the time to invest in training. And it's that actual training, which creates so much immense value for yourself, not only for the trainer, but, oh. but for yourself, right? I'll, I'll add one thing to that is, is for the business as well, because in, in order to train, what I found, so I started my ERP implementation business just myself. I was walking out, working out of the basement of my ex-employer and basically just me. And I ended up growing that to, to, to seven staff and a couple of contractors. And effectively, the way I did it was when I'd trained my staff, I'd document it and I'd, I'd write, this is how you do an implementation. I started writing these implementation manuals and, and that became the value of my business was these repeatable systems that I was creating in order to teach my staff. And all the things that I'd learned over the years about how to do this and how to do that, once I got it into an if this, then that type of, manual for the business that's where the business had real value and that really is what a business is about if you can separate what's in my head from the business because i can get hit by a truck tomorrow what's my wife and three kids going to have value if if i'm not there my business is worth nothing because it's all in my head you know so that's where you, having those procedures and using wikis and internal training processes is what a business is actually about you know at, at the core I couldn't agree more with you. And that's a great way to end the show. Um, thank you everyone for dialing in and listening. Matt, hang around. We'll have a bit of an after show. And thanks everyone for staying tuned. We'll see you next week. Bye for now, everybody. Kate says 